Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. No, it's not. It is. Hey, I fixed it. Run back there. <laughs> oh, wow. We have too much fun between the tech team and I. It is an ongoing, joyful exchange. Sorry about that. If you're worshiping with us online or here, we're so glad you're with us. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here, and it's good to be together. Um, I heard a lot of comments about the weather today. Um, I knew we'd be at probably a little bit light, although um, our heritage folk braved it out. And some of them, during joys and concerns, we're talking about, I have friends in South Dakota, I have friends. And I mentioned to them, um, I'm not trying to be funny, but last night, I don't know if you saw, but 70,000, over 70,000 people um, showed up in Kansas City in negative four degree weather for a five-hour worship service. Um, it is kind of a worship service. It's a different kind of God. But, and I, thought, I saw those folk brave in the cold. And um, I, I'm not trying to be judgmental. If the Browns were playing today, I'd be downtown all dressed up in the weather. But it just, I just felt like there's something in God's heart that must just look down at filled up stadiums in minus four degree weather and empty churches and just say, hmm. <laughs> Don't you think? I, that Micah verse always strikes me that we played here in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his weekend. But in Micah, God is making a case against the people. And we saw in the scripture today, Tanisha read, uh, God made a case against Sodom and he invited Abraham in to kind of be a defense attorney and to plead the case. But God made his own case in Micah. And one of the things God said, he said, I wonder what it was that you got, grew weary with me. I wonder what I did that you got bored with me. And ran after Jeremiah said worthless things and became yourself worthless. So thank you for being online. Thank you for being here. It is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, weekend, and we're celebrating our teaching series, Bless, that Pastor Dave kicked us off last week. If you were here or online, I was. Give it up for Pastor Dave. Did he do an amazing job kicking us off with the blessing? I knew he would. He's a dear friend. But we're looking at this training series, really, B-L-E-S-S, Five Everyday Ways to Love Your Neighbor and Change the World. I think Dr. King would be pretty uh, pleased today that on his weekend, we're talking about loving our neighbor. Some people might say to me, why does church make a big deal about Dr. King Day? Why don't we make a big deal about Columbus Day or President's Day? And my first answer to that is this is the only national holiday we have that's in honor of a preacher of the gospel. So that in itself ought to be enough to make churches close their offices on Monday, something I've done for 33 years and pay homage. But the other more important thing is this weekend and this memory is, is not just about a man, it's more about a movement. 
It's a movement toward building the beloved community that Dr. King talked about. It's a movement that wasn't initiated by Dr. King or by Mother Teresa. It was initiated by the Lord our God when he called Abraham and Sarah. We saw that back. Dave read it last week in Genesis 12. And he says, I want to bless the world, not curse the world. In fact, God so loved the world, this was Christmas, that he gave everything he had. He said to Abraham and Sarah, two broke down, retired Iraqi farmers in what's today common Iraq and said, I, I'm not finished with the world yet and I'm not finished with you. I want to bless you, not so you have a great IRA or a 401k. I want to bless you that through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. This beloved community was first and foremost God's idea. And I'm so grateful for messengers and prophets, not just those of old, but those contemporary prophets like Dr. King, who had the courage to write his letter from a Birmingham jail, who had the courage to call us to be better than what we are, to call us out of our depravity. And so we remember that this is a call that Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 5 through 7, that we are to build what? The kingdom of God. Where? On earth. As it is in heaven. In fact, I told the heritage people, they don't get a pass because they pray that prayer every Sunday. And how dare we pray the Lord's prayer and not go out and work for it. So that's why we celebrate this weekend. And so we begin with this, this series <coughs> that Dave gave us a concept for to be a blessing that we're called to bless. It's with the first B of our training, if we're going to really love our neighbors. And I don't know, friends, is there any more important work in the world right now? than fulfilling Jesus' command, not ours, to love our neighbor. It was absolutely equal with loving God. And I said in my intro to Dave last week, there are a lot of people out there claiming, I love God and are doing a lousy job of loving their neighbors. And Jesus didn't, it wasn't multiple choice. He said, one of the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? And the other is like it, which in the Greek means is equal to it. Love your neighbor, and I love the Apostle Paul. He was a horrible neighbor <laughs> when he was a Pharisee. Nobody knew the Bible better than he did. He was righteous. He practiced everything under the law, and he hated his neighbors if they weren't like him. He was a nationalist. He was a misogynist. He was a racist. He was a murderer. He didn't just talk bad like we do today about other people. He, he, he did what the vilest thing and murdered those people. That's why I always say, if you have a tough time believing in Christianity, Paul killed Christians, and then he became one. Explain that. And I've been empathizing with Paul. I don't know, since I did my doctoral work, I've been empath not just thinking about what he taught and reading his words, but empathizing what must that have been like to actually be called to be a leader in a community of people whose families you had killed. And it was, it was the redeeming aspect of Paul learning to love his neighbors, not just some of his neighbors, but all of his neighbors that brought him to redemption. And what he wrote in Romans 13, he said, I know I tried to fulfill all the letters of the law and it ran me into the dirt. But he said, here's what I've learned. Love your neighbor and you will fulfill everything in the law. We're called to love our neighbor. And so we started today with B, which is be in prayer. Be in prayer for our neighbors. And I think Dr. King would love that part of it because he once said, it's not quoted as much as some of the things he said, but I keep it in my office. It said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. 
If you say I'm a Christian, but I don't pray, Dr. King would say, nah, nah, nah. That's like trying to live without breathing. And we see today this actually what scholars call the first prayer in the Bible. It's the first time that a human being goes before God and intercedes for others, gives petitions to God. Isn't it a weird story? I mean, it's like Abraham and God are like two Middle Eastern guys in a market bartering over the price of oranges. Hey, Lord, for 50, how about for 40? Hey, for 30, how about 20? Yeah, I gave her 10, right? And they're talking about the whole human race. You know, it's, it's this weird story, but it's an intercessory story. And one of the things, <clears throat> Abraham is not just praying, he's priesting. Now, priest is kind of a funny, fuzzy word to us. And if I do my job halfway, held, helped to, halfway well today, then, you know, I think that concept of what it means to be a priest will be important to us. So we're going to look at this first priest. We're going to look at the great priest to which the first priest pointed. And then we're going to look to call for a new priesthood for all of us to be priests. Okay. So we'll look at this first priest. Now, Abraham wasn't the very first priest in the Bible. There's kind of this shadowy figure in Genesis 13 and 14 named Melchizedek. And uh, they say his name different ways throughout the scriptures. Kind of, we don't know a lot about him, but this is the first case study we have of being a priest of interceding, intervening for others. And God invites Abraham to this work and all of us to this work. And then we look at how Abraham did this work. And I think it'll teach us how to do this work. Okay. Now, first context, you always, you, I hate when people rip, rip the Bible verses out of context. You can't do that. Okay. You, you look in context and the context of the story is God has called Abraham to be this blessing. And now in Genesis 18, Three people show up in Abraham's campsite where he and Sarah are. Now, one of them is the Lord God in human form. The other two are angelic messengers in human form. And they just show up in Abraham's camp. And Abraham practices faith-based hospitality. What was expected for people who followed God. He went out, he greeted them. He took water for their feet. He offered shade because it was the high heat time of the noonday, and he brought them food. And you need to note that, how, how he, he received others, and what we're going to hear about how Sodom received others, okay? Abraham received them. And then at this part of the story, it's after they had spent that time, they get up, these, these three men, and they head toward Sodom. And at this point, God shows Abraham that he's going down to judge Sodom and all the cities, what they call the cities of the plain. Uh, he's, he's going down there because the societies of that city had become so vicious, so unjust, and so corrupt that there was a great outcry against them, right? We heard verse 20. How great, God said, is the outcry against them and how grievous is their sin. Now, I need to speak to something right now, and I'm not going to do a whole sermon on it. We're just going to sit on a park bench on our journey for just a moment, because I, you've heard a lot of preaching about the sin of Sodom. If you have, I grew up, and I was told the sin of Sodom, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's how I was conditioned, was all about human sexuality. Let me say to you, that is a horrible interpretation. It doesn't mean we can't talk about human sexuality. We talk about everything on the scripture, but it really has nothing to do with this story. 
See, in, in that day and age, God is talking about the viciousness of the city. And you're going to say, well, wait a minute. I, I just, yeah, Abraham receives guests, right? These two angelic messengers go down in human forms as men. They go to Lot's house. Lot receives them the same way Abraham did. They were going to stay out in the square. And he goes, no, no, no. You don't sleep in Sodom in the square. And brought him into his home. And then it says what? Every man in that town, young and old in the Hebrew, up to the last male, came to Lot's house, banged on the door, said, you get these aliens and these outsiders out here right now. And they want to abuse them. And yes, abuse them sexually. Now, this is a horrible, horrible fact, but there were towns all over the ancient Near East like this. They were so centered. They were so vicious. They were so unjust. They did not want outsiders. They did not want foreigners in there. They want a pure ethnicity, a pure race where they were in power and it was always the men and they were in control and they exploited the poor for their own gains. And if any outsiders came into that city, male outsiders in an act of humiliation, All the men of the town would get together and do what's practices and it breaks our hearts, the horror of what's happening in prisons across our country and across the world. They would gang rape them, right? And these are heterosexual men, but they understand. These are fathers. These are husbands. These are brutal, brutal people. In fact, we know that because it says every person up to the last. And in fact, Lot tries to appease them by doing what? Giving them his daughters, which is horrible enough. And shows us the exploitation of women. But maybe, you know, these guys normally practice sex with women. Maybe they will cool off on the women. But this is horrible. And this same story, if you don't believe me, happens in Judges 19. Go home and read it. Same thing in a town like Sodom in Gehiah, who a foreigner, a Levite, comes in. And they, the, the men of the town come out and they want to do this horrible act of power and humiliation. And they actually, this time, give the men, the, the women, and, and they sexually abuse them as horrible. And this is what the outcry that's come up. The outcry is coming up because of the viciousness and the corruption and the injustice of these cities that do not obey Jesus' command to welcome the stranger. But they abuse the strangers horribly. And they abuse the poor. And they abuse the needy. In fact, Hebrew scholars would tell us this word outcry is used over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. And it always means the cry of the oppressed. So when God shows up to Moses at the burning bush, he uses this same word. He said, tell the people, I have heard the outcry of the abuse that's happening to them in Egypt. And I've come down to do something about. And in the Hebrew scriptures, when the prophets will say, you know what? I don't really read Amos. I don't like your worship services very much. I don't listen to your songs. I don't care that you serve at a soup kitchen when I hear the outcry of the poor. And you are doing nothing about it. And in fact, this fits very well. Don't believe me. Read the Bible. It fits very well with what Ezekiel tells us. Um, My clicker's not working. Help me, Dave. Um, Can you click it for me? There it is. No. There. I did that. There. Ezekiel said, did I do that or you did? We'll figure it out. The devil is a liar. He doesn't want you to hear this. I did or you did? Oh, you're just saying that. Okay. Um, 
you're loving your neighbor. Thank you. Be in prayer for their technology. But this is what Ezekiel, this fits so perfectly. Ezekiel tells us, the Bible tells us what the sin of Sodom was. Read it, Ezekiel 16, 49. Now, this was the sin of Sodom and her children. They were arrogant, overfed, and unsecure, unconcerned, indifferent. They did not help the poor and the needy. And God says, I must go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that's coming to me. And at this point, God invites Abraham and all of us to do something about the hurt of the world. He invites Abraham into it. You can see it throughout the story. What does it say? It says, God says, I must go down and see. Now, let me tell you, atheists and agnostics have so much fun with passages like this. Like, oh, why did God have to go down? I mean, you told us at Christmas, Jesus is bigger than Santa Claus, right? Why couldn't God sit up in heaven and look in his crystal ball? Like, why did he have to go down? I'll give you, I'll tell them, I'll give you that and I'll raise you one. Why are they walking? It says they walked down to Sodom. Why didn't he fly down? Why didn't he do what they've been doing at Star Trek for over 30 years and just beam down, right? Because the God of the universe does not treat us like ants on an anthill. He doesn't treat us like fleas on the back of an elephant. We were created in God's own image. And God so loved God's creation that he comes down in ways that we can relate to and in ways we can understand. In fact, John Calvin, who was the uh, reformer, the, the father of the Presbyterian church, and I don't, I don't agree with a lot of stuff Calvin said, but one thing I do say is they asked him, how does God speak to us? And he said, the way we speak to infants with goo-goos and gagas. God of the universe loves us so much that he comes down. When Abraham or Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, God didn't, he came down and he walked in the garden and he said to them, where are you? Now, come on, God had to come down and he needed a GPS. There were only two people on the planet. God knew where they were. They called out to him, where are you? What's going on in your life? Where are you at spiritually? Where are you at in your relationship with me? And we sang at Christmas that ultimately God came down in Jesus Christ in the brokenness of a manger and a man who never traveled a hundred miles for his home and lived homeless and his own people rejected him. God comes down. And some of you know that. When God comes to you in a phone call from a friend that happens just at the right time that you can't explain, God didn't have to send a lightning bolt from heaven. God comes down and he invites Abraham and he invites all of us into relationship. And here's three ways that I can show you. You miss them in the story. I was studying this and you see that God invites Abraham to be a priest, to intercede for the city. First, he's inviting Abraham into this process. Do you notice it says God speaks, which means he says it out loud. Huh, I wonder if I should tell Abraham what I'm about to do. Now, have you ever said this to somebody? Have you ever gone up to somebody and say, look, I don't know if I should tell you this. But what does that mean? You've already decided you're going to tell them, but you're saying to them, I'm saying this to you because I trust you. Right. Second thing in the story, God sends the other two messengers ahead. It said the two angelic messengers went, walked on towards Sodom. Abraham and God remained behind. 
So I'd like being in a meeting with Pastor Lori or Dre and Leah, and we're all together, and you're in that meeting. And at the end of the meeting, you say, hey, Pastor Lori and Dre, um, can I just talk to Chip one-on-one for a minute? What does that mean? You're inviting to an intimate conversation. Do you see this? This is what the Lord of the universe is doing. Y'all go on ahead. I'd like to speak to Abraham alone. Abraham, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I trust you and I'm going to. And then if I continue that verse, I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcries come to me. And if not, I'll know. What's this if not? Like God is saying to Abraham, okay, you come here and make a case. You plead with me and I'm, I'm deciding whether or not. Uh, you know, what I should do. He's inviting Abraham into the process. And if you don't believe that much, it says when God said this, then Abraham approached. That's the Hebrew word. It, 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 our translation said came near. It Abraham approached. Well, he was already speaking with God. What does that mean? He went from three feet away to six inches? No. That word approach in the Hebrew was a legal word. All our lawyers in attendance at Heritage got very excited about this. You should too. That word approach means to approach the bench. It means to come here and make a case. He's inviting Abraham in to be a representative of the people. And here's what Abraham does. Two things I want you to see that are brilliant. One's remarkable and the other one shows us the path. The first thing is Abraham's prayer is not for some of his neighbors, It's for all of his neighbors. He's not just praying for his people. He's praying for all people. See, what I might have done, what Abraham could have done, is he knows his nephew Lot is in Sodom and some of his family. Abraham could have said, oh, Lord God, if I may, can you save my family and then go nuke all the rest of those pagans? I hear that prayer a lot in our world today, right? But Abraham doesn't do that. He could have done that. He could have said, just can you, Lord, can you just get my people out? Why didn't he do that? He could have. He's saying this about the city. He said, God, could you spare the whole city? And the word spare in the Hebrew means what our translation said. Could you forgive all of them? And there's a great Hebrew scar that here... You, you see some echoes to Moses, to Amos, to uh, Samuel, to Jeremiah, who always were interceding to God and praying for their people, praying for the nation of Israel and interceding. But here, Abraham does not just intercede for his own people. He doesn't just speak about Lot and his family. That certainly must have been on his mind, but he never mentions them. He prays for the entire city. People of the nation of Israel and people who weren't believers and non-believers, righteous and unrighteous. He's praying for the city. And Hebrew scholars said at that point, this makes this prayer the most unique one in the entire Old Testament because he's praying for all of his neighbors. He said, I don't just want you to forgive and to spare my family and my friends and my people and my party and my group and, and my culture. But God, could you spare the entire city? And that's a, that's a prayer I think is so needed in our world today. And that's, a, that's how Abraham prays. And the second thing is, one scholar says he, Abraham doesn't just pray, he's going on a theological exploration. 
He's searching the heart of God. A.W. Tozer used to say, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He's trying to understand who is this God? He's making a case and he's saying, you know, I know God that you're a God, the judge of the universe. You're a God of justice. Now see, modern people, I get this all the time. I don't like to think about a God of judgment. I like to think about a merciful God. Yeah, I do too. But let me ask you something. God is the perfect merciful God. And, and if, a, if a merciful God hears the outcry of oppressed people, of victims, and does nothing, is that mercy? See, for God to be a God of mercy, there's got to be judgment. There's got to be resisting evil. Every one of you who took a vow to join this church said, I accept the freedom and the power that God gives me to resist oppression and victimization, and marginalization, whatever form it presents itself. That's our call. But he's checking on God. He said, maybe God's will to save is more predominant than his will to judge. And he begins to borrow God. He said, God, you know, for 50 righteous people, would you save the city? For, for, okay, God, I want to be uh, for 45. Hey, how about 40? Wait a minute. How about 30? I mean, he's being pretty bold here. Uh, God, I don't, you know, I know I'm dust and ashes. I shouldn't pray. For 20? God, for 10, and over and over and over again, God says, yeah. But Abraham goes home. Hmm. See, Abraham got right up to the door, but he didn't go through it. Abraham discovered something. Like, see, in our world, American individualism and Western individualism, we are so focused on individualism, we say, hey, I know, you know, if I do something wrong, I fail, and I deserve this, but if I didn't do it, then I don't deserve it. But most of the world also knows that's true, but there's also collectivism, or there's corporate sin, and sometimes whole people groups and nations, and, and things can happen where they're so vicious that even the few that aren't complicit are part of the same problem. But Abraham takes it in reverse. He said, I wonder, God, if you're so in love with righteousness that even the righteous few could cover the unrighteous many. Is it possible that 50, and God says, yeah, how about 40? Yes, 30, yes, 20, yes, 10, yes. And Abraham goes home, and he doesn't ask the question. He got, he was, it's an unfinished symphony. He was going up an eight, uh, you know, an eight scale, uh, you know, crescendo. And he got to scale seven. And when he got to scale eight, he went home. Because what's the question Abraham should have asked? Would you save the city for? See, before I went to seminary, this is why you always need to vet your pastor's education. Before I went to seminary, I actually preached on this passage. I was so dumb. I wish I could go back and apologize. Um, so stupid. But I actually said that, you know, and Abraham said, and for one, would you save the city? And God said, yes. And somebody pointed after said, you know, that's not in the Bible. But I do give myself one pass that he should have asked it. Because we all ask it. What about one? What about for one righteous person? Could we go home? Abraham found his way through the impenetrable mountain of God's judgment. And he went home. Why? Because he knew, I can't even find one righteous person. He knew Lot wasn't completely righteous. So who'd that leave? It would leave him, maybe me, the, maybe me the prayer, maybe the, me the one praying, maybe, maybe I could go through it. But what about Abraham's resume? 
You want to read what happened up to 18? God said, I'm going to bless you and through you all the people of the world will be blessed in chapter 12. And by verse 10 in chapter 12, Abraham and Sarah are down in Egypt and there's a famine and Sarah's very attractive and he knows Pharaoh likes to take attractive women into his harem. And, and Abraham says, hey, Sarah, don't tell him you're my wife. Tell him you're my sister because it might save my skin. And Pharaoh comes down, oh, it's your sister, and he takes him, her into his harem, and he's going to take her into his bed at night, and God intervenes. And, and gets, that brokenness doesn't happen. And even Pharaoh goes out to Abraham and says, read your Bible, and says, what were you thinking? This is the father of the nations. And then in you know, chapter 13, he and Lot separated, and Lot went to Sodom. And you know the elder of the family might have been saying, man, did I do the wrong thing? And, and in chapter uh, 15, God comes back and he says, no, I'm not giving up on you, Abraham. He renews the covenant. He says, you're going to bear children with me. Trust me. Sarah's going to have a child. And in chapter 16, what do Abraham and Sarah do? Do they trust God? No, they take matters into their own hands. And they say, well, here's our slave girl, Hagar. Why don't you go have a baby through her? Which is legally rape. And they do that and go away from what God said. And they broke the entire world. And we're still paying for that today with the enmity between Muslims and Jews and Christians. It all started there because they didn't believe God. And then God comes back in Genesis 17. He says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to have to fix this. And now we show up at Genesis 18. Do you think Abraham doesn't know his own resume? You think he doesn't know his own brokenness? You think he doesn't know his own record? And he said, my God, we're one righteous person. God would spare the world. But, I, but he knew he wasn't it. He had found the way through, but he couldn't travel it. And that's why Abraham's prayer points to a true and greater high priest. See, all of us know, you and I know, we need a high priest to intervene for us. We need one to plead our case. We need one to go to bat for us and approach the bench when we are broken. And we, the Bible says we have one, one that will never go home, one who is eternal in Jesus. And that's why Romans 7 says that Jesus is a guarantee of a better covenant, that there were many priests in the half in the past, but Jesus was the great high priest, and he went before the throne of God. And he's there, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He is able for all time to save, to spare, to forgive those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. God never, our great high priest never goes home. He sits at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. He said, God, I know Chip's blown it. But, but you know, he, I, I've interceded for him. See, he didn't just make the case. He executed the case. Abraham prayed for people who could have hurt him. He prayed for people, Canaanites, that he was always fighting with the sword. He was praying for enemies who were hostile to him. But Jesus Christ prayed for people who were killing him while they were doing it and said, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. Abraham risked his life by going before God. Hagar said in Genesis, Genesis 16, how is it that I've seen God and lived? Abraham doesn't just see God, he's arguing with God. He risked his life, but Jesus Christ gave his life. He said, no one takes my life, I give it freely. Abraham went home, Jesus left home. Abraham went back to his place, Jesus gave up his position in place and came down. 
and he lives forever. And because he lives and intercedes for us, what Abraham found out, Jesus proved. And he showed us that for one righteous person, God would spare us all. Mm. I got to tell you in my life, friends, I have not always been righteous. In my youth and that, I did some dumb things. I, I ran away from God, but I had a praying mother. And I had a praying grandmother. And I'm going to tell you, I know now this many years later that there were times it was because of their righteous prayers. And because they were connected with their high priest that the righteousness of Jesus fell on them and was transmitted to me. And later on, later on, when I, I gave up on God again, I got broken and hurt my life. And I said, let me, let me do, walk away from God's plan. And I'll just take over this business and I'll do all this stuff and I'll be important in all this. And God sent a righteous woman into my life. A woman who said to me, Chip, if you have the courage to take his hand and then take my hand together, we can do this thing. And the righteousness upon her relationship with God fell on me. Do you know this is a principle of God that you can be carried through through the righteousness of others? Because they are connected with the righteousness of the high priest in Jesus. And when you know that for yourself... You can do this final part. Just give me a few minutes and I'll close. We can be a new priesthood of all believers. Abraham was a great priest. And do I want you to pray like Abraham? You bet I do. Be in prayer for your neighbors, all your neighbors. When we finish this series, we're going to give you practical steps to do after we're done. One of the things I'm going to ask you, think of eight people you know, maybe you don't even know their names. Some you do. Some will be family members. Some will be your children or your parents or your aunt or your uncle. Some will be some of your closest friends. I want you to think of eight people, neighbors to pray for. But I'm going to want you to pray for some you don't know very well. Maybe, you know, somebody, a waitress in a, 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 you know, a grocery store you go into. I, I don't want you to just pray for some people. I want you to pray for people you agree with. I want you to pray for all people. And see, I could see, do right now and say, you know, do like Abraham does. Wrestle for them. Pray for them. Give up your time and money for them. Serve them. Bless them. Go be Abraham. And my time's up. I could go sit down. But if I did that, it would crush you. Because you can't go be like Abraham and try to do the first part of the prayer and do it, you know, just work harder to do it. It will run you into the ground like it did Paul. Paul found out none is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10, this is a guy who was the ultra, you know, person in trying to be righteous. And he found out none of us can be. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, I can be more than a conqueror through him who loves me. And so if you, if you can do the first part of that prayer, you can only do it through the second part by being connected to the great high priest. By, by receiving what he's done for us, that we can go out and humbly know we're dust and ashes. That's what Abraham said. But intercede for others. God is desiring for this. <clears throat> At Mount Sinai, I'm almost done. He said, the whole earth is mine, but you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And Paul said, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You know what the word priest meant? Literally in the Hebrew, it meant bridge. I'm calling you be bridges. I don't like division. I don't like separation. 
The devil likes division and subtraction. I like multiplication and addition. Go out there and be a bridge. Help people get to me because you're connected with me, my mom, my grandma, my wife, because they were connected with God. Praying church mothers because they were connected with God became bridges for me when I was broken, when I was bruised, when I was bored and helped me get back to God. And because I understand that that is what Jesus has done for me, I then can go out and be a bridge for others. A priest is connected with God, but a priest is sympathetic and empathetic with the people. I've been thinking about this a lot, this fulfilling of loving neighbors. And in the new year, I've been working on this sermon for probably, you know, right after New Year's when Pastor Steve preached. And I put 15 days of just thinking about This, how are we loving our neighbors? How are we interceding? How are we doing this priestly work? And I've been walking, okay, in this new year, 2013 beat the crap out of me. So I've been, every day of of January so far, this weather is making it rough, man. But I got to practice what I preach. If they can worship in Kansas City in minus four, I can walk. But I'm averaging 4.8 miles a day. I've just got back in and started to do some of my weight work. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get back in fighting shape, not just for me, but so I can continue to do this work for the world. And when I was walking, I walk in these metro parks and there's a walk I have. And at about the two and a half mile mark, I try to walk five. There's this bench. I go walk all this way down to this bench in the metro parks and, and start walking. I would sit at that bench and I would get some water and I'd go quick break and go back and do the last two and a half miles. Do you know, I was working one day on this sermon. I'm preaching to myself. People think I'm crazy. You walk by, I, I got to be the lunatic in this metro park because people walk by me and I'm Got my headphones in. I was wondering why people move a little bit. People do that to me in a car too, because I was preaching to my my steering wheel on there, you know. But I walk and I do this. I sit and I'm working on a sermon. I'm walking down there and I sat in the bench. How many of you know all the benches in the metro parts have these little dedication plates on it? And I was thinking about how am I loving my neighbors? How am I loving all people? And I said, Chip, it's just a little voice, a thought. You've never even read this nameplate. And I turned around and read it. I'm not going to share the family with you. And it was in honor of a, a daughter, a young girl, who a family had lost at 15 years old. Her birthday was 1985 to 2000. And I thought, my God, I started to weep. And I said, what that must that family be going through 23 years later? And how am I, how can I intercede for them? I don't know if they're believers. I don't know if they're doubters. I don't know if they're bitter. I don't know if they're breaking records. But I just poured my heart out and started praying for that family. And you know what? Every walk I've taken in that Metro Park for the last eight days, I've done the same thing. And I I don't get an award for that. But I'm thanking God that through the greatness of Jesus and the righteousness of that one who went the distance for me, I need to be sensitive and attentive to hurting and broken and bruised people and bruising people, to, you know, oppressors and the oppressed alike, and to be seeking for healing, resisting evil, resisting injustice, but praying to be a bridge. Thank God Dr. King did that work and gave it all up for us. That's our call. Be a priest. Do priestly work, but don't try to do it by doing it harder. Doing it by connecting the one who built the greatest of all bridges for you. Amen? Thanks for the extra time today. Let's end by praying together. Let's end by praying together. I've I've gone about six minutes over. I apologize. We're going to pray a prayer that Dr. King prayed. 
I want us to pray it together. It's a prayer that he prayed again and again and led people in for his church. You know, when Pastor Dave preached last week, he preached about Adam Hamilton. Adam Hamilton, I know him well. Dave knows him well. He's a pastor of the largest Methodist church in the world, one of the largest churches in the country in Kansas City. Yes, he was actually dressed up at the game last night. I saw it on Twitter, so I sent him a, a text, and I said, you will be in church tomorrow, right, Pastor? Kidding. But Adam, you know, they worship 35,000, I think, in four locations, and Adam has done a great job. But if you were here last week or you listened online like I did, Dave shared what Adam shares when he's at workshops or gatherings. Here they've baptized tens and tens of thousands of people. But there's one person he didn't reach. It was his daughter. Did you hear his message? Adam shares this all the time. His, his youngest daughter left church and gave up belief in God. And, and Adam says, here I, here I was, you know, reaching their people, and I, I lost my own child. And, but, but he says, I wonder if there's a church out there for my daughter. You remember that? And Dave said, because he knows us well, and he knows he's followed our work, and he's with us online this morning. He said, you know, he said, if she's in northeastern Ohio, I know a church. I know a church that can do that. And he said, he looked at us, and he said, it's you. Because you're not just praying for some people, you're praying for all people. You're opening your doors to everyone. You're walking, working, worshiping together as one, not just with your own tribe or your own place or your own party. And he said that, and some of you, I, I was listening online, some of you at this service clapped a little bit, and I, I want to clap, but I cried because it hit me like a stake right in the heart. And I said, oh my God, we better be a church like that. We better be a church for people who are bruised or broken or those who are sure of themselves and those who aren't. We better be a church seeking and trying to be. Because you know when Abraham got to 10 people, do you know it took 10 people in that day and age, which would be a minion to start a synagogue. And it was always Abraham saying, if there's 10 people, that's what it takes to found a church back in that day. If there's a church like that, people are willing to be like that. God, could you spare an entire city? And he said, yes, I could. I pray to God, Garfield Memorial Church. We will commit to be a church like that, to be a community of peace and bridge builders from now until Jesus returns. So let's pray this prayer that was Dr. King's prayer for the church. I want you to pray it with me. We'll pray it out loud. We thank you for your church founded upon your word that challenges us to do more than sing and pray, but to go out and work as though the very answer to our prayers depended on us and not upon you. Help us to realize that humanity was created to shine like the stars and live on through all eternity. Keep us, we pray, in perfect peace. Help us to walk together, pray together, sing together, and live together until that day when all God's children will rejoice in one common band of humanity in the reign of our Lord and of our God, we pray. And all God's people echoed Dr. King and said a resounding, amen. Come on, you can do it a little louder than that. Amen and amen. We go to kick it to others that tomorrow at House of Prayer, I'm going to revisit this passage tonight because I, I think there's a lot of teaching in there just about prayer itself. And I have people say to me, how do we pray? And I talk to Pastor Lori and, and tomorrow night at House of Prayer in our sanctuary at 630, Fred Wheat and I are going to lead on this about how to pray and, and look at the prayer life of Dr. King. And everybody who comes, we're giving you a complimentary copy of Dr. King's writing, Strength to Love. 
I was at a conference years ago, and there were six of us that were the lead speakers, and they put us on a panel at the end, and pastors and leaders could ask us questions. Somebody said, hey, what would each of you say is the most important book for a pastor or a leader outside of the Bible? And I said, strength to love. Coretta said these were the most important sermons of Dr. King for us to hear. I think there's great leadership in here. Understand the context, but for CEOs and uh, teachers and principals and physicians and police chiefs and that. So if you want to come out tomorrow at 6.30, we'll just keep you an hour. You can stay longer if you want. We're going to teach on this kind of how to pray Dr. King's prayer life on the holiday. I forgot to mention that to you, but that's available. Um, We've just prayed it. Let's go out and try to live it. Amen.